FPS on the Grid. I'm your host, Dylan Lockwood. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Aaron Hardick. How's it going, Aaron? It's going pretty well, Dylan. Glad to hear it. Later in the episode, we'll be talking with Tepri Executive Director Damon Harmon. But first, Aaron, I have wonderful news. Uh, I don't know if you knew, but this podcast it, uh, represents our our two-year anniversary. I I did not know that. That actually is wonderful news. It is. I, I, I guess it comes in between this episode and the next one, and I'm one of those people that likes to celebrate your birthday before the actual day, if it's, you know, if it's in the middle of the week. Uh, maybe that's just American holidays kind of conditioning me to, their, to everything being in terms of seasons that are over once the day actually comes, uh, as someone with a birthday on a holiday. But yeah, uh, I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank, uh, to thank our listeners and uh, to thank you too, Aaron, for uh, sticking with this, uh, with this fun little experiment we've been doing for two years now. I honestly can't believe it's been two years. A lot of people actually don't know. Okay, when I say a lot of people, a lot of my friends and family outside of my professional life don't know that I participate on a podcast. So I can now tell them, yeah, I've been doing this for two years and none of you remember. I'm kidding. Um, But no, it's been a blast. It's something that we both were just like, we should try to do this. And then we pulled it together, but it's been quite fun. Yeah, it's been it's been a real treat to get to meet and talk to so many uh, different people working working in energy, trying to make everything better. And I guess that kind of clumsily leads into what we're talking about, which is energy equity. Uh, that's that's going to be the theme of the show today. That's what we're going to be talking to Dana about. And when we talk with Dana later, we're going to be discussing the key stakeholders and strategies to address a litany of energy equity issues. Uh, and one aspect of equity that she's mentioned to us is lowering energy burden. So, uh, Aaron, what is that and why is that a problem? Energy burden is really referring to the on-take of having to pay for uh, electricity, what that cost is. So it's referring to that, you know, the cost of electricity on Uh, or energy, sorry, not just electricity, on homeowners um, and communities. And it's a significant problem because energy is too expensive for a lot of people. So according to the Greenling Institute, California families below 50% of the poverty line spend 53% of their income on their electricity bills. So, I mean, put that in perspective, Dylan. I would imagine that you don't pay close to 50 per, 53% uh, of your income on your electricity bill. I, I would assume it's significantly lower. So, put yourself in a situation where you're dedicating over half of what you're making just to get energy and electricity in your home. So, it is a significant problem for a lot of these low-income communities and underserved communities because what they are making the 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 little amount of money that they are making too much of it is going towards uh energy which is you know really a basic need yeah uh, yeah exactly and before we can talk about like the business case for reducing customers energy burdens there's of course a you know moral imperative to lower to lower that percentage of income spent on electricity for the most vulnerable citizens so that they have more money 
you know, to lead happy lives, support themselves and their families and, and contribute to our society and, and our economy. Like you can have a full-time job and be below 50% of the federal poverty line, which was, which was that stat. Um, so yeah, there's a, but you know, before you even start getting into the utility argument, the, the utility business case for it, there's, you know, just that general, that general thing that it's better for people and better for society if this is reduced. Exactly. And you start to think about the way that electricity, you know, affects our daily lives. We talk about this quite often on the show, but actually, and I think it, Bill Gates, his, he releases his weekly Gates, Gates notes. And this week was focused on, you know, access to electricity. And I believe, you know, one of the major themes is if you have electricity in your home, and you're more likely to be able to read at night. So you think about children in low-income areas where if they can't pay their electricity bill, then they can't turn their lights on at night to read and do their homework. And the same thing rings true for, you know, like working working mothers uh, who may be taking night classes if they can't afford to turn their lights on again. So um, it affects the livelihood and quality of life of a lot of, of people in different ways. And if they can't access electricity, then it actually limits their ability to participate and contribute to the community as well. That's exactly true. Uh, and you, you, um, you tweeted out recently some data from, uh, from a report done by the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. They looked at the energy burden across both single and multifamily households in major cities around the U.S. to lay out where the biggest energy burdens are, and they did some recommendations at the end too. But uh, what what was what was some of that data that you were looking at? So it really was kind of looking across certain demographics, um, not just low-income areas. But the energy burden is it really is felt most by low-income households, which we just kind of talked about, and we'll get in later. Uh, we'll, we'll explore in more depth with Dana later. But the median energy burden of a household below 80% of the area media income is 7.2, um, which is almost four times higher than those people above that threshold, and their median energy burden is closer to 2.3%. But when you look at this in more depth and segment it out across different demographics, the data shows that white house, white households had a median energy burden of 3.3%, which compared to Latino households at 4.1% and African-American households at 5.4% is the lowest. So um, white people are paying less for, uh, or they have a less significant energy burden. Um, so it really just goes to show that vulnerable, vulnerable communities are the ones with the largest burdens. Um, but this data that was collected by the American Council for an energy efficient economy did focus on major cities. So it doesn't really account for rural areas and access problems uh, in, in larger service territories that are less populated, which um, do account for a lot of the issue. That's when you're having issues to accessing electricity. It is largely in rural areas right now, um, but it still does affect major cities, which is what this report focused on. 
Yeah. You hear about these same demographics, both in economic demographics and racial demographics, economic conversations all the time about, you know, who's got a leg up on X, who's got a leg up on leg up on Y. And this very much ties into that to that issue. So, but let, let, let's play a devil's advocate real quick. Low-income households, you know, struggling with energy burden, you know, that can be maybe something that tugs at my heartstrings, but, you know, if I'm trying to run a utility business here, why is it my responsibility to help alleviate that? Well, one, aside from having, you know, what I believe is, of course, a moral obligation, but um, utilities, I mean, they, they have to, especially municipally owned utilities, um, they have to serve the community but if you want to look at it, you know, simply from the business case, essentially you have customers that are consuming energy and electricity and they're not paying their bills. So you're still, if they can access it, you're providing that service, um, but they're not paying you for it. So from a business standpoint, obviously, that's not ideal. So nobody's really winning when you're missing payments. And being shut off or taking excessive credit really hurts the customer's ability to make future payments as well. And it really hinders that relationship, right? You want to build a good relationship with your customer and you never want to be in a situation where you have to tell them that you can no longer provide them a service because they can't pay for it, especially a service that is basic human need today. Um, So the other thing is it affects not just having electricity uh, also translates into not having access to other energy sources. So, I mean, primarily heating and cooling. And we know, I mean, this year, uh, I think July was like the hottest month on record. Um, imagine not being able to turn on an air conditioner in your home uh, on the hot, during the hottest month of the summer because you couldn't afford it. I mean, people can die from... Uh, heat exhaustion and uh, it's so it's just an unfortunate situation if you get to the point where you have to shut off services because communities can't afford to pay them because one or because uh, families aren't can't afford to pay them because one you're not getting um, you're not getting that revenue but also you're having almost a negative impact on the well-being uh of the community itself. So it's really a lose-lose situation if you can't serve these customers, which do make up a large portion of uh, the potential, which do make up a large portion of the market, low-income customers. So um, Dana will actually talk about this later, but you have a lot of opportunity, business opportunity, by providing programs and services to low-income communities that tailor specifically to their needs. I think that's right. Uh, I think uh, it's there. There is, of course, that that moral imperative we we talked about at the start. Um, but even if you're, even if you that doesn't, even if the, you're the kind of executive that that doesn't sway you, there is that. There is that simple business case to be made that if you're you know if your customers can't afford your product then then they won't be purchasing it you won't be making that money and then they won't and the undue burden you're putting on them will prevent them from being able to purchase your product in the future so yeah it's a i think you laid that out i think you laid that out really well and it's you know it's not just a it it's not just a it's a cost it's the customer's problem to make sure they can pay their stuff because there's, you know, there's the systemic stuff that's built into it that, 
that you were you were talking about before with the data showing uh, how you know the burden increases for for more vulnerable communities and part of that is tied into an income inequality issue uh, which uh, in that same paper I remember there was a statistic that energy costs from 2004 to 2014 went up about 39 percent and in contrast the average income of the bottom 99 percent of Americans uh, in an even longer time span from 1979 to 2007 only went up by 18.9 percent uh, and I believe that was 200 it was over 200 percent for the top one the top one percent and you know not to get all Bernie Sanders on you but uh, there are there are there's clearly a link there if people are making more money less people are not making as much money at the rate of the increase of costs then that's going to increase the burden uh on the on people making less money it's just a that's just math yeah exactly um and then if you have that over a prolonged period of time like we said, it, it affects the uh, communities in, in so many ways, you know, lower income people, you know, these vulnerable communities are more likely to have health, health issues, um, live in poor living, have poor living conditions, uh, and, and other just really tragic things to see in our communities here, which can sometimes be uh, replicable of like a third world country in terms of access to basic needs so yes that just exacerbates the problem um i mean and it also prevents them from being able to just be more energy efficient as well because there's a cost of entry on that um so now uh you had dana on a panel at ets and we interviewed her for for this episode so having now talked with her twice about energy equity what are you hoping to hear uh from thought leaders about this problem going forward. I mean, I, I know from my perspective, I want to hear them talk about it at all. Like we had a panel about it at ETS. It was, it's been brought up uh, at, a, at like City of the Future, but in general, it's, it, it hasn't seemed as high a priority as I think it, it really should based on the, 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 the cases that have been laid out so far. I think what I wanna hear thought leaders address now is how we can all work together better to address these issues. So I think one of the biggest reasons that energy equity hasn't been spoken about um, too much is one, because, you know, it's not, it's not that, sorry for using this term, but it's like sexy of a topic. <laughs> um, but also the the fault or and maybe it's not the fault but the ability to dress to address energy equity issues does fall across a wide variety of stakeholders and traditionally it's been hard to get these people to come together and address this single problem because they have different incentives or different objectives they're trying to achieve um, when working with low-income communities. So what I hope to hear moving forward is how partnerships can be made to address some of these issues. Just briefly, like for instance, what I'm talking about, maybe the reason a low-income family can't um, 
have access to electricity is because the living conditions of their house just simply won't allow it. They don't have the wiring um, or they can't, they just can't afford it. So that's not just the utilities issue, right? That comes back to, you know, home building and property ownership and things like that. So I hope that thought leaders try start taking the perspective of looking across multiple stakeholders and figuring out how to align on objectives and values to actually address this issue. I think that's very critical that you're you're talking about which stakeholders you're partnering with, not just the you know not just the the technology piece or the analytics piece, but like who in your community you're actually working directly with to to improve the quality of electricity service and quality of living of the community that you're nominally there to serve. So I, I think I think you're right. Um, being being clear about your plans to uh, to bring all the stakeholders to the table is is important. Well, th- thank you for that for laying out that that case, Aaron. Uh, when we come back, our interview with Tepri Executive Director Dana Harmon. So we're back. Today on the show, we have the Executive Director of the Texas Energy Poverty Research Institute, or TEPRI, Dana Harmon. As Executive Director, she has overall strategic and operational responsibility for execution of TEPRI's mission to collect actionable data that industry partners can utilize to mitigate the energy costs of low-income consumers across Texas. Dana, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. We're happy to have you. Uh, I've talked about my uh, love of energy equity conversations, so, but just at the most basic level, when we're talking about energy equity, what are the key issues that we that we need to define? Sure. Well, um, first, and, and really the kind of core uh, on which TEPRI was founded is what we call energy poverty. That's a situation where a person or a family cannot meet their basic energy consumption needs in order to maintain a healthy and productive lifestyle. So this can be caused by, um, you know, really a question of access to essential energy services. Um, It can be an inability to afford those services, or it may be a lack of awareness about what services or programs or assistance is available to families. So the study of energy poverty is exploring the intersection of that kind of energy access and economic poverty. Just real quick, what, just real quick, sorry, uh, when you say essential energy services, how do you define that? Well, so, you know, basic uh, connection to both electric power and to gas, um, which can be a question of, you know, here in this country, for the most part, we do have grid connectivity to most homes, but in some cases, quality of housing stock can lead to problems with uh, access to essential energy services. Um, I wanted to mention that one important metric that we use when talking about energy poverty is the concept of energy burden. That is the percentage of household income that's used for household energy needs. Um, In Texas, the median residential energy burden is about 3% of household income. Low-income households are spending on average 10% of their income on energy costs, so over three times higher. Our research and the research of others shows that people end up making trade-offs, having to choose between paying to keep the lights on, putting food on the table for their families or clothing or medicine, or not consuming their full requirement of energy. So, for example, you know, going without air conditioning in South Texas in August. Um, so we really want to understand the root causes of that energy poverty situation and find ways that we can address it. 
The second and increasingly important aspect of energy equity has to do with this idea of equity in the energy transition. We're in this moment of incredible transition in how energy is harnessed, how it's used to develop healthy and thriving and resilient communities. And you know, now we have both the opportunity and the responsibility to ensure that during this transition, we're putting the right systems and structures in place to make sure that we are serving well those among us who are the most vulnerable. So, uh, well, before we get into the nitty gritty of what utilities can do to help low-income customers, are, are there any systemic problems with the utility model that are intentionally or unintentionally muscling out people from access to these essential energy services or to make their power more affordable? Well, you know, we, we work with utilities uh, all across Texas, and utilities are striving to provide reliable and affordable power to all of their customers. Um, including low-income customers. Um, and, you know, in this state, we've got a variety of models here in Texas from uh, retail electric providers and competitive choice areas to municipally owned utilities and co-ops. Um, and they really all have different models that are driving their decisions. But utilities aren't poverty experts, and that's not their charter. So there are a whole host of complex factors that really do make it difficult for utilities to meaningfully engage with their vulnerable customers they serve. Um, that ranges from identifying who the most vulnerable customers are to you know, competing for attention from people who are facing all sorts of other and often more pressing struggles. Um, and then, of course, trust is always a, a factor um, in vulnerable communities. But, you know, additionally, um, poor housing conditions can really limit the ability of what utilities can do from an efficiency perspective. Um, and for the case of renters, it can be really difficult to incentivize a landlord to invest in energy improvements when a tenant is the one paying that utility bill. So there are some kind of systemic challenges that we are really working with our partners to, to try to figure out how to uh, how to overcome it. So how, how how do you go about about doing that? Like we said at the top that TEPRI's mission is to collect actionable data that industry partners can utilize to mitigate the energy costs of low-income consumers across Texas. So how, how do you actually do that? So um, really we're working to make a difference um, by utilizing data, uh, geospatial analysis, energy burden indicators, and you know, pairing those with community voices to give utilities and other stakeholders insights that can help them enhance their impacts in vulnerable communities. I'm doing this work because I believe that energy has a truly critical role to play in building healthy and, and thriving communities. Um, but it's, it's really about so much more than raising funds to help people pay their utility bills. Really, we're trying to provide um, decision makers with the insights they need to develop models that deliver real value to the energy provider, but meaningfully also increasing the quality of life for the consumer. And so we believe that by better understanding the specific needs of the consumers, we can work to design products and services that help meet those needs. Um, you know, I mentioned we do some pretty cool analytics and, and geospatial mapping to really understand where are, from a geospatial perspective, where are the neighborhoods that have that greatest risk of higher energy burdens based on a combination of income and housing characteristics and other, other indicators. And, you know, I really think that this work is about finding the right tools in our toolkit to address the very specific needs of each of those communities. One thing the research does show is that one size fits all doesn't work when it comes to low income energy program design. 
And so we need to do the hard work of, of really understanding uh, the, the needs in the communities we serve. And then also the segmentation to appreci appreciate that low-income communities, just like you know any group of people, are certainly not homogenous and have different needs. And so you know someone at 80% of area median income is very different than someone at 30% of area median income. And you know the, the type, the quality, and the tenure of housing matters a lot as well. Um, additionally, I wanted to mention we believe that there's um, a, a continuum uh, of tools available to us that really begin with crisis assistance and bill assistance and just making sure that folks are in stable situations to using tools like weatherization and energy efficiency investments to reduce longer term energy burdens. And then increasingly uh, using solar, solar plus storage to not just reduce energy burden, but also increase community resilience. You've mentioned, you know, just a lot of these different um, things that analytics need to account for, a lot of different inputs that will, you know, hopefully go into these platforms and systems so that they do um, relieve energy burdens both now and in the future. So I would imagine that requires bringing together quite a large group of, of stakeholders, people who have different areas of expertise to help address some of these issues. Can you talk about what it's like working with um, stakeholders on these projects and what some of those challenges kind of are? Sure. You know, when uh, TEPRI started, we were um, pretty fundamentally focused in the power sector, um, and, and really that was the, the group of stakeholders that we were, we were convening. We pretty quickly realized that this conversation um, is really highly dependent on housing as well, and so we expanded our network to, to bring in the affordable housing community. Additionally, we realized that social service organizations and community action agencies are playing huge roles in the community when it comes to serving the needs of, of low-income people. Um, but we also recognize that those groups weren't necessarily all naturally convening, um, in part because there wasn't necessarily a lot of incentive to do so. You know, they, each group had kind of different goals, different um, targets, and even different terminology. Um, so one area that we've really started to see momentum is by taking the approach that this isn't just a challenge for utilities to address, but we need to bring together those various stakeholders um, and align ourselves in terms of, of those goals so that we may begin to, to leverage resources um, to deliver models that have a sustainable impact in the, the long term. Um, you know, one example is last spring, uh, we co-hosted a convening called the Empowering Texas Communities Conference in Galveston, um, where we teamed up with a group called the Texas Association of Community Development Corporations and brought together over 200 stakeholders um, from both the, the utility sector and the affordable housing sector. And one of the biggest takeaways from that conference was that we were speaking different languages. Um, and so we've really recognized the need to align ourselves in terms of even just basic terminology, um, in terms of how we define vulnerable populations, in terms of um, what does low income mean, so that we can begin to align uh, or find opportunities to, to align our programs. Um, you know, additionally, uh, we had the pleasure of facilitating a workshop um, at the 
um, annual conference of the Texas Association of Community Action Agencies in San Antonio a couple of months ago, and we held a workshop called Developing Energy Partnerships. And it was a super cool convening because we had, um, uh, you know, we brought together uh, in that convening a lot of community action agency representatives who are on the front lines, who are seeing what's going on every day in their communities, administering both weatherization and utility assistance with uh, utility program administrators and uh, those service organizations that support those and had a lot of meaningful conversation about how we might use technologies, use different data sets to begin to identify and better serve uh, individuals in our communities through both uh, utility assistance and weatherization. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention is I think that right now, at least in Texas, it does feel like there's a real willingness to form collaborative partnerships um, between these different stakeholder groups, which is really encouraging to see. Um, you know, in the past, I think there have been some um, siloed activities, I guess is, is perhaps the right way to, sit, to say it, but I believe that there's a recognition that we need to come together to begin to address energy poverty uh, here in Texas. Um, but in order to do so, we do need to be really thoughtful about what it takes to get everyone at the table. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not about pushing for any specific solution, um, but really about saying, okay, what needs to be true in order to develop the models uh, that will work um, across the board. And here in Texas, we have a competitive energy market. So we are seeing, you know, different types of partnerships form, uh, different energy providers trying new things. Um, but that being said, it's really important for them, these energy service providers, to lower customer acquisition costs and really retain customers long term. So what sorts of products and programs do you guys recommend to utilities who are both looking to stay competitive in the Texas market, but also, more importantly, um, provide affordable electricity to these lower income customers. Gosh, you know, I, I wish there were a silver bullet for that one. Um, but one thing that I, I can say for sure is that low income households represent a very important market segment, um, representing 3.8 million people in Texas. Um, so, you know, in addition to sort of a, a corporate respo social responsibility angle or increasing customer satisfaction, there are very real business reasons to develop products and services that address the specific needs of, of individual communities. Um, you know, for example, if you can help people get in situations where they can pay their bills, you can reduce bad debt um, from late or non-payment on the part of, of the retailer. Um, you know, with products that are meeting specific consumer needs, you can reduce your customer service costs or call center costs. Um, and then to your point, Erin, in the areas with retail composition, uh, retail competition, you can reduce customer acquisition costs and decrease customer turnover by offering products that better meet the needs, the payment terms, et cetera, of, of your low income customers. Um, and then additionally, I wanted to bring up in relation to um, various cities' climate goals from a building decarbonization and optimization perspective. Um, it's really important to look at the residential building stock where low-income people are living, um, both you know, multifamily and single-family, um, and looking for opportunities where tools like energy efficiency, um, and in some cases rooftop solar, um, can both 
uh, lower the energy burden for the resident and uh, and help to achieve some of those climate goals. Can you maybe give an example of uh, of a utility bringing something on a product or a service that re- that they were able to identify as a solution for the needs of of those low income customers to, to sustain that customer retention. Sure. One thing I'd really like to to talk about. You know, we've been very interested uh, here at Tepri in uh, community solar models because community solar circumvents a lot of the traditional barriers to access for low income people. So, for example, home ownership or access to capital. Um, and we've been working on a project um, that I'm super excited about that will bring solar to low-income households and reduce energy burden. Um, and we've partnered with the developer and the utility in several local uh, community development organizations uh, to come up with a, a framework that I think is, is really exciting. Um, and so here, we actually did um, some analytics on the service territory of, of this utility and um, really looked at where the highest areas of uh, energy burden were and looked at um, kind of specifics in terms of who would be the most likely candidates for that specific project. This utility was actually very interested in in specifically targeting um, veterans and uh, teachers and community service providers. And so we could kind of identify where uh, those those people reside. And then um, we conducted some consumer preferences surveys to understand what really mattered to them um, in terms of the financial, the social, the environmental benefits of a specific uh, offering. And then we overlaid those consumer preferences um, with with the other data sets that I'd mentioned. And with that segmentation framework, we got uh, some really interesting insights about um, kind of how to target specific consumer groups uh, in a way that we think will really meet their needs from both an energy burden reduction standpoint, from bo- from a um, uh, program design standpoint, and, and in terms of kind of looking at their long-term preferences in terms of participating uh, from an energy equity perspective. Um, we like this model. We think it's it's repeatable and scalable. Um, and we think it has a lot of potential to take it to, to other markets. So I've actually seen a similar project to what you were just talking about, Dana, but it was actually at El Paso Electric. And I can't remember if it is targeted specifically for low-income customers, but it is a community solar project um, that they actually you know, uh, maxed out within, I think, like a week or two of of promoting it. But um, I remember specifically asking the engineer who was giving us a tour of the community solar installation why they chose not to add batteries um, to make it a a solar plus storage uh, program. And he said because that was going to raise the cost of the electricity Mm -hmm. and that was not in line with the customer expectations of the customers who had signed up for that program. And these were customers who traditionally weren't eligible to uh, use solar energy because I I believe, you know, they're focused on multifamily units um, or just others. Yeah, renters. Um, So I've seen a similar project like this, and it seems like for at least El Paso Electric, um, it was quite successful for them. 
Yeah, you know, I think community solar is is certainly building a lot of momentum um, across the board, certainly not just for low income customers. But I think one of the reasons that we are so interested in the model is, is um, like I said, because we think that it, it can bring access to people who otherwise may not have, have been able to use, you know, traditional rooftop solar. I'll say that the other thing that we are very interested in exploring is how do you take that um, community solar model and make it um, work for low-income customers in the competitive market. I think that's that's an area which has not been you know really unlocked yet, and one uh, that Tepri is excited to be partnering with several other uh, stakeholders to to try to say how can we develop a model that makes sense for everyone involved, and to your point, Aaron, may be able to um, you know pair storage and other technologies to not only reduce energy burden, but also increase uh, community resilience. The community solar stuff is, is very interesting. I do, however, want to bring it back to something you said earlier in regards to how you're looking at, uh, how you're looking at housing. I mean, as energy efficient uh, upgrades to like old buildings is something that can be really hard to get certain stakeholders on board with just because, you know, energy efficient buildings, uh, appliances, that's all very pricey even if it does eventually pay itself off down the line the upfront cost can be too much for a lot of people um so how how do you kind of help how do you help uh, service providers and uh other key stakeholders tackle this issue it, it it's a, a great question um and you know again i think it's it's really about aligning our objectives um between the utility goals uh for example and the housing providers and the community um you know we've we've just launched a project in houston um aimed to identify opportunities and and really develop a, a roadmap um to use both energy efficiency and, and solar, in fact, to address um, the energy affordability gap experienced by low-income households um, in, in Houston. Um, and so with that, we're actually conducting an analysis of the affordable housing inventory in Houston, and that's both um, you know, big A affordable tax credit properties, but then also um, naturally occurring or market rate uh, affordable housing in low-income areas um, of, of the city. And then um, using some really cool tools that are available now to conduct um, an analysis of um, energy efficiency potential in those buildings uh, from a technical um, and economic perspective and then also an achievable energy efficiency perspective. Um, and then also uh, kind of doing the same analysis of rooftop solar potential on those buildings. And... Um, you know, while we define the energy affordability gap that's currently experienced by residents there, we're convening a group of stakeholders that include the utility, it includes local community action agencies and representatives, um, it includes the, uh, the affordable housing developer community and saying, okay, how might we use those two buckets of potential that we've identified to begin to address that energy affordability gap and meaningfully reduce energy burden for low-income residents uh, in that city. Um, and I, I did want to mention that um, the U.S. Department of Energy has put out a great tool uh, actually called the Low Income Energy Affordability Database, or the LEAD tool, which is bringing together a lot of data sets that previously uh, weren't, weren't available where we can really start to get some real granularity 
into um, what that energy efficiency potential might be. Um, additionally, uh, NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, uh, has a, a great tool called Solar for All, which helps uh, us kind of understand where that uh, potential is as well. So I think by, by kind of leveraging some of this data that's available at our fingertips and then bringing the right stakeholders together, um, you know, it, it still may be difficult to have those conversations about how do you incentivize uh, the appliances, uh, energy efficiency appliances and energy efficiency measures in some of the low-income housing, but we can say, okay, we know how much potential is there and we can meaningfully try to um, capture that potential to reduce energy burden. We've talked a lot about how energy equity, you know, simply isn't just about raising money, finding dollars to um, alleviate this issue, but um, how it can create value within business models and communities. But we still should talk a little bit about that funding aspect. And Dana, you and I were on a panel together at ETS, and we did talk about this topic of equity. And, And one thing you mentioned is that funding seems to be pretty insufficient, um, especially in Texas, serving about less than 5% of the population that really needs it. Can you just talk about kind of the insufficiency of the funding and and why that is? Sure, I'll be happy to. Um, So when Texas uh, was deregulated in 99, there was a a fund put in place called the System Benefit Fund um, that funded a program called Light Up Texas, which provided utility uh, bill discounts for um, people, customers that were enrolled in Medicaid or SNAP, uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Um, but that program actually ended in 2016, um, and so there's no there's no longer funding available for those discounts. Um, now, several retail electric providers are still offering um, benefits to that those qualifying customers, such as payment arrangements or deposit waivers, but that the discounts are no longer there. Um, additionally, there there's a federal program called LIHEAP, um, the Low Income Home, Home Energy Assistance Program that uh, provides utility assistance and um, is combined with uh, the weatherization assistance program, which which uh, provides weatherization funding. Um, but Erin, as you mentioned, uh, that program is currently serving less than 5% of the eligible population uh, in, in Texas. Um, now, it does prioritize vulnerable households, um, so those households with elderly members, disabled um, members, or, or children under six. But it is uh, severely inefficient to, to really meet the needs of the entire entire population of Texas. Um, and this is why we think this work is so critical. Um, be, because the current funding is inefficient, um, we think that we need to find ways to better leverage our scarce resources. Um, and, you know, importantly, I think find um, opportunities to leverage philanthropic investment as well to develop models that are sustainable in the long term um, without, uh, without additional funding or, or subsidies. And so that's, that's really where we think the opportunity is, if we can unlock um, both the value to the customer in terms of energy burden reduction and, you know, make more resources available for the families who need it. Um, but also importantly, you know, capture um, and find ways to monetize the, the value for utilities uh, in a way that fits their business models. That's where we think the, the real opportunities are. And I think the fact that the 
um, you know, funding is so scarce highlights that need even more. Uh, that actually leads into the the upcoming panel you're going to be talking about at uh, Solar Storage Fest in San Antonio this uh, at the end of at the end of this month, August twenty twenty eighth and 29th. Uh, so that and that panel is going to be incentivizing incentivizing solar and storage. Whose job is it? Without giving away too much of the game, what are you excited to talk about on that panel? Well, I'm I'm thrilled um, really to be having this conversation and to be making sure that equity is a part of the the solar and solar plus storage um, conversation. I do, you know, I, I know that we've got a lot of work to do in terms of bringing down the cost and making sure that it makes sense and then we can bring equitable access for all. But I um, welcome the opportunity to speak with this audience about how, uh, how we might get there. Well, thank you very much for coming on and talking with us about equity today. And we're looking forward to that uh, discussion in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much for having me. Erin, thanks for being here to, to talk equity. Well, thank you, Dylan. You can find our research in media at etsinsights.com. You can find us on social media at D.Y. Lockwood, at Erin underscore Hardick, uh, and at Z Prime Research. I forgot if I said it before, so I'm just adding it again. Uh, if you're interested in uh, finding out more about Solar Storage Fest, you can go to ssfest.co for you can find more information and registration. Dana will be there, and Aaron and I will be there. So feel free to stop in and say hi.